0: Well, last week we had a great Sunday. Yeah, I don't know if you were here. We baptized five people. Amen. That was amazing. Um, Chris Sprouse is still awaiting to be baptized. Um, her daughter was in the hospital. Katie is now home on the mend. Chris now has COVID. Could use prayer. All right. All um, right. But five people, yes, last Sunday, that was great. My father came and he did a Bible drama to kind of summarize our series, to end our series on the Lord's Prayer. Um, He presented, dressed up like an apostle, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And um, as he was doing that, it hit me, man, there's some heavy stuff in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's some heavy stuff and maybe before we skip on to the next thing we need to unpack some of that So that's what we're going to do today Um, we're going to focus on just one of the things that jesus said that was pretty heavy in his sermon from matthew 5:31 through 32 Jesus says this It has been said Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's tough. That's really tough. And we want to take Jesus' words very seriously, but you got to wrestle with, does that mean the only time you can divorce your spouse is if they've committed adultery, if they've cheated on? I mean, what about someone who's getting beat up? What about someone who's just been abandoned and their spouse has just deserted them? And the people listening to Jesus' message, they had a tough time with this too. Because what we see is several chapters later, if you flip over to Matthew 19, they question him about it. In Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. These are tough. Even if you've never been personally in that situation, I'm sure you have a loved one who has. And when there are tough things that we read in Scripture that just don't compute, they don't seem to make sense, or maybe they contradict other things that we read in Scripture, it means we need to do a deeper dive into Scripture. And we don't just explain it away with our own logic. We just don't ignore it. We don't just use cultural rationale. But we let Scripture explain itself. And so we're going to take a deeper dive today. And that means looking at the context of these passages of what Jesus is talking about. It means looking at the original language because our Bibles were not written in English or King James. They were written in Hebrew and Greek. And sometimes things do get lost in translation. And it means looking at the other passages in the Bible that also speak about divorce. And there are other ones. All right, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, For example, talking about context, in both these passages, Jesus is referring to the law of Moses, and what Moses said about divorce, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So um, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, anyone, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24 there. And then later in chapter 19, when the Pharisees come and ask him, they say, why then did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They too are quoting Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So to understand Jesus's answer, you have to know what Deuteronomy 24 says and what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 24. So before we go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, uh, let's see how many times I can say that and get my tongue tied today. All right, before we go to Deuteronomy 24, we're first going to go to Exodus 21 because it comes first. And in Exodus 21, God gives a command about a person in an abusive marriage and what they are to do. All right, Let me give you some background on Exodus 21. You can turn there if you want to. I will have the passage on the screen. It's a complicated chapter, which is probably why you don't hear many sermons on it. Um, In Exodus 21, God has freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They are now at Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments and other commandments as well. One of the commandments that God gives them is that you are not to make a slave of your brothers and sisters, of your fellow Hebrews. I rescued you out of slavery. You are not to enslave one another. But God does make allowance for people who fall into debt. That if a man falls into debt, he can work off his debt for a maximum of six years. He can be an indentured servant. And in the seventh year, no matter how big the debt was, he goes free. So sometimes when you read in the Old Testament about slavery, that's actually what it's talking about. Now what happens if a woman becomes indebted? Well, we have to just be honest about ancient culture. It was not easy for a woman to self-support. There were not many industries available to women other than prostitution. And so women depended on either their father or their husband or their son to support them. What happens if a woman becomes indebted and she's taken as an indentured servant for six years? She is very vulnerable to sexual abuse. And so in Exodus 21, God says if there is a poor woman and you take her into your home, she is to be your wife. And you must give her full rights as a wife. You cannot treat her as a servant and do whatever you want with her for six years. She is your wife. She stays with you. If you do not take her for your wife, you must take her as your your daughter. That's what Exodus 21 is talking about, all right? So, now, verse 10. He, God is talking about someone who's taken an impoverished woman and she's become his wife, if later on he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. The reference there to payment of money refers to the fact that she entered the marriage in debt. And she does not have to pay that debt to get out of the marriage. If her husband is abusing her, he's neglecting her, depriving her of food, of clothing, treating her more like a slave than a wife, she is to go free. That is a reference to divorce. And that is... My, to my knowledge, the first place in scripture that we see that God instructs that a person who is in a marriage where they are being abused is to leave. Alright, let's go on to Deuteronomy 24. This now is 40 years later. This isn't part of God's law that he gave them on Mount Sinai. This is the Israelites. They're on the edge of the promised land, about to go in 40 years later. And Moses begins to give them laws. So this is the law of Moses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce. Does this sound familiar? Puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife because she doesn't really have any other options between remarrying and become a prostitute. And the latter husband turns against her, writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. Or if the latter husband, who took her to be his wife, dies, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is basically a law to prevent wife, wife swapping. You know, just flip it, divorce. Like, ooh, I want this person over here, so I divorce you, and now yeah, maybe I'll come back to you later, and you know. To tr- prevent that kind of emotional abuse. People trying to move on with their lives, but you can't, because you don't know if your spouse is going to go back to their former husband. Or wife. It's a prohibition on that kind of emotional abuse. But the interesting part that the Pharisees focused on was that very first verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her. If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce. This isn't a command that he should. Okay, do you see that? First of all, Moses is just saying if this happens, it seems to allow a man to write, to divorce his wife because he finds some indecency in her. What does that mean? What does, what constitutes indecency? Well, we have to do a deeper dive. You have to look at the original language. And the Hebrew word here that we translate indecency literally refers to nakedness. And it has a connotation of shame. It is not the same Hebrew word in like Song of Solomon where we have two newlyweds delighting in each other. It's not that. This is where the Bible talks about walking in on your father, or walking in on your mother-in-law, or walking in on your daughter. And yeah, the Bible does address all those awkward situations. Um, but that's the connotation of this word, this shameful nakedness. That you're seeing something you should not see, okay? So what does that mean between a husband and a wife? The Israelites didn't know. They didn't know and it was hotly debated among them. Um, in Jesus's day there were two rabbinical schools. Rabbis were people they would go to school, they would study the law so then they could teach others. Many of them became Pharisees. There were two rabbinical schools, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And the school of Shammai taught that this shameful nakedness referred to a wife shamefully exposing herself, like exotic dancing, or you walk in on her naked with somebody else. This is shameful nakedness. In that instance, you can divorce your wife. The school of Hillel taught that it means Anything you see in your wife that you don't like, it's shameful, and you can divorce her. And we know from from ancient manuscripts that that was a popular teaching of Jesus' day. The school of Hillel had held popular opinion. And so if you fast forward from Deuteronomy 21 to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he is starting in his ministry, and right out of the gates, Jesus starts attacking this false teaching by the school of Hillel and their Pharisees. That's what he's referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 31. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife is to give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is not negating God's command in Exodus 21. That a woman leave an abusive marriage. He's not negating that. He is defining what shameful nakedness is in Deuteronomy 24. He's directly quoting Moses here. The same thing happens um, with his later conversation with the Pharisees. They don't like this. He's challenging their teaching. So in chapter 19, they challenge him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for basically every and any reason, right? I mean, that was the practical application of their teaching. And Jesus answers by quoting Genesis about God's original design and plan for marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Does that make more sense now? Jesus is debunking the school of halal of Pharisees. That shameful nakedness means anything you don't like about your wife, what you know about her in private. Shameful nakedness refers to sexual immorality. and Jesus keeps hitting on this throughout his ministry turn with me to Luke chapter 16 Luke chapter 16 Jesus is speaking to his disciples but there's Pharisees present and he's Um, speaking to them about greed. Luke chapter 16, and in in the middle of this, he inserts this one little line, one little sentence about divorce and adultery. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he goes on and he tells the story of the rich man's manager who was wasteful with his master's possessions, with his master's treasure, and what happened to him. And then in verse 10, he says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? I want you just to think about that because Jesus, in a few sentences, is going to segue from this to talking about divorce and adultery and how you treat your spouse. I'm going to read it again, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What are the true riches Jesus is talking about? Let's keep reading and find out. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other You cannot serve both god and money The pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at jesus He said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men But god knows your hearts What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. This is clearly a a teaching about greed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is trying to force their way into it. Everybody wants to be a part of God's kingdom. But not everybody wants to obey God. (laughs) So they're trying to force their way in by pretending certain things in God's law don't exist. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. You want an example? Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, living right beside him, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He didn't give him anything. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Jesus is looking at these Pharisees who love money. And he says... What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight You know that rich person that you idolize that you want to be like He's in hades God doesn't even know his name But that poor person living right next to you that you sneer at and you overlook that weaker person God knows his name and he is honored right next to abraham And right in between these two stories about greed, Jesus sandwiches the statement about how we treat our spouses. About divorce and adultery. Why? Nothing in your Bible is randomly placed. That's right. The context matters. Jesus understands that adultery at its root is fundamentally about greed. That we take our spouse for granted. That we want somebody who looks better, who seems better. That's greed. And Jesus makes a very powerful statement here. That if we cannot be entrusted with the treasure of our spouse, then God will not entrust us with true riches, the treasure of heaven. Think about this. What happened to the powerful rich person who overlooked the weaker person living right next to him? He ended up in Hades. Jesus is making a powerful statement not only about greed, but also about adultery and how we treat our spouses. So we have Exodus 21 that instructs a spouse to leave an abusive marriage. We have Deuteronomy 24 that allows a divorce in the case of shameful nakedness, which Jesus repeatedly clarifies means sexual immorality. And Jesus also makes it very clear that we can't get rid of our spouse just because we want to marry someone better. He says that's greed, that's adultery. You need to be faithful to your marriage covenant. God has made you one flesh. What God has brought together, let no one separate. You can't just divorce so you can hook up with someone else. That's sin, that's adultery. And it hurts. Um, I'm sorry, I just feel like I have to call this out because we live in a culture that lies to us about this. And I've seen Christians lie about this to themselves. That adultery, the consequences are minimal. I've had parents drag their kids into my office, not here at other churches. Kids who were cutting themselves, becoming anorexic, not eating, getting into fights at school. And they say, tell me what's wrong with my kid. And I look at them and I'm like, I don't know. Do you think maybe it's because you abandoned their father and hooked up with somebody new? And they're like, no. My kid lost my new boyfriend. My divorce has nothing to do with this. Kids are resilient. And they're in complete denial about the effects of their adultery on others. It's just one of the many lies that we tell ourselves to justify adultery and divorce. And I think we need to take a moment to understand how this works because no one plans on committing adultery and getting divorced. And yet it happens to a lot of good people anyways. The first lie is the same lie the school of Hillel taught. Believing that all those little annoying things about your spouse, the things that you they do in private, the things that you know about them because you live too close to them, that all their little shameful nakedness is so much worse than your shameful nakedness. That's the first lie. The next lie is that there's somebody else out there who doesn't have shameful nakedness. Because we all do. We all have flaws. We all have things about us that are not adorable when you get up close and personal. The beauty of marriage... Is that it is supposed to be the safe place to reveal our flaws. And receive love in return. And receive grace in return. It is a very powerful thing. When someone sees you in your shameful nakedness and loves you anyways. That is powerful, that is healing, that helps us overcome our insecurities. And it's designed to empower us, not, not so we can say, oh, they love me as I am, and I can just wallow in my flaws and not work on myself. No, we, we don't take our spouse's grace for granted. <laughs> Instead, we respond in gratitude And it gives us courage to face our flaws, to work through them, and become the best version of ourselves. That's how healthy marriages work. But discontent creeps into marriages when we begin to believe that our spouse's shameful nakedness is worse than our own. And instead of giving them grace, we start to hold them in contempt and criticize And then we start believing that the grass is really greener on the other side, that there's somebody else out there who's so much better. And then we lie and tell ourselves that fantasizing about somebody else is no big deal. It doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't hurt anyone. Fantasies don't hurt anybody. The problem with fantasies, let's just get real. When you fantasize about being with someone other than your spouse... And those fantasies, your spouse doesn't exist. You don't think about how harmful it's going to be to them. Your kids don't get hurt in fantasies. All those inconvenient details just get edited out of our fantasies. And the more we replay them in our head, the bigger and deeper of a grip They have on us and the more we begin to believe our own lies that the consequences of adultery are minimal and then we begin to act it out james 1 we talked about this a few weeks ago james 1 teaches that being tempted isn't a sin but when we entertain the temptation it leads to sin but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire by their own greed and enticed when the fantasies begin and then after the desire has conceived it gives birth to sin to the sin of adultery and when that sin of adultery is full grown it gives birth to death that's the part we lie to ourselves about that it doesn't really hurt people that bad it does it gives birth to death I want to be very clear. If you've been in an abusive marriage, God instructs you, Exodus 21, to leave. If your spouse has betrayed you and committed adultery, God gives you the option of leaving. But God does not give us the option of divorcing our spouse because we've deceived ourselves that the grass is greener on the other side. Alright. Now, what if you become a Christ follower and your spouse is not? Or what if your spouse abandons you and just ups and leaves? I've seen it happen way too often that a spouse just deserts another and doesn't have the courage to admit to themselves that they've deserted their spouse and they never file for divorce. And the other person is just like, what's going on? Does God's word speak to those situations? Yes, it does. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians, Chapter Seven, starting in Verse Ten. Verse Ten. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. Paul is writing. Why does he say not I, but the Lord? Well, he's about to summarize what Jesus taught to married people. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Why does Paul say that? Well, he's about to talk about something that Jesus never specifically addressed. And so now he is giving a new command. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. So you are not supposed to leave, but if they leave you, let them. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? If they have left you, and this happens, people are abandoned, they still love their spouse, And they think, well, I don't want to be the one to file for divorce. And what if God gets a hold of their heart and they, and they change and they come back to me? And a person can be in that state of limbo for years. And that's what Paul says. How do you know, wife, whether God's going to get a hold of your husband? and save him how do you know husband whether you will save your wife you don't and god wants you to live in peace he wants you to live in peace so if they leave you let him do so a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances meaning you are not bound to that marriage We want, God wants us to live in peace. I think that's a very powerful statement that Paul is making. We serve the God who set the Israelites free from slavery. Christ came to set the captives free. God's word says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We do not require, worship a God that requires you to be bound to an abuser. And make no mistake about it, abandonment is a form of abuse. What Paul is saying here, really, it's just the flip side of Exodus 21. It's the same principle. Exodus 21, if you're being neglected, if you're denied your marital rights, you leave that marriage. This is just the flip side of the coin. If your spouse is neglecting you and has denied you your marital rights because they have abandoned you. You see that? Same thing, different sides of the coin. You're not bound in that marriage. God does not require us to be bound to our abusers. He does require you to forgive them, to love them, to pray for them. We're to pray for our enemies, but he does not require you to be bound to them. God also is very clear that we are not to become abusers by taking our spouses for granted. Jesus was very clear about how seriously we're to take our marriage vows. That in marriage, God makes us one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what if you've already blown it? What if you're sitting here and struggling to come to grips the fact that you've you've broken your vows and you have deeply hurt people who have trusted in you? God sees you. He sees you in your shameful nakedness. And he loves you. And if you ask him, he is eager to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. David. God called David a man after God's own heart. That's how God describes David. David was an adulterer who blew up his friend Uriah's marriage. And when God finally broke through David's denial and self-deception, David broke down and he wept. And he prayed. And he wrote these words. And if you're here and God is knocking on your heart, trying to break through some self-deception and denial that you've had, just ask that you make this your prayer also. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified, God, when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you, God, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be brighter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face, God, from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, Lord, or take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. I thank you. That you see us as we truly are. You see those who have been weak, those who have been abused, and you provide a way out and you provide freedom. God, I, I thank you that you and your word, you don't oversimplify these issues. But you speak to the depths of the kind of pain the divorce and adultery causes. Amen. And God, I thank you that you provide healing. And I pray that now you will provide healing, God, to all of us who need it, to those who have been hurt and abused, God, and to those of us who have been self-deceived, Oh, Lord, create in us a clean heart. Cleanse us. And we will become whiter as snow. Have mercy on us, oh God, in your unfailing love. Humble us so that we will turn to you and be healed. Thank you that Christ has come. To set us free. May we define our freedom in you and on your terms and not on our own. May we not try to force our way into the kingdom of heaven, God. But may we trust in you and in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.